You're listening to the Pursue God Truth Podcast, the official channel for faith and life topics at PursueGod.org. Join us every week as we explore new topics from a biblical perspective. Well, it's Friday. That means it's time to jump back into the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 8, verses 11 to 21. I want to start today with a question. And this is probably a question for you, our Christian listeners, that you've wondered about yourself. I've talked to so many people in 20 plus years of ministry who really struggle with doubt. They doubt their faith and they feel guilty about it. They, they look at other Christians, they look at other pastors, maybe for you young people listening out there, you look at your parents and you say, man, it seems like my parents have this incredible faith. And, and so then you begin to question your own faith and you've got some questions about Jesus or you've got some questions about culture or you've got some, you know, maybe some ideas in your mind. You wonder where they come from. And, you know, you wonder if you're a Christian. I know there are a lot of people who have doubts. Okay, so today we're going to be speaking to you because in today's section of Scripture, Jesus is going to confront, let's call it religious confusion, to be generous. Jesus is going to confront religious confusion from two directions. On the one hand, here's a little preview of what we're going to, what we're going to be reading today. On the one hand, he's going to, again, go toe-to-toe with those Pharisees, the teachers of religious law, and they have, incre- they have something more than doubt. They have something that we're going to call today disbelief. You'll see why here as we get into the scripture. And then at the end of our reading today, we're going to see Jesus interacting with his disciples once again. I mean, here we are in chapter 8, so we're halfway through the book of Mark. And Jesus is going to encounter his disciples, and and spoiler alert, he's going to be disappointed because they're still struggling with their own doubts when it comes to who Jesus really is. And I want to make sure that you see, and we're going to draw this out in the story, I want to make sure that you see the difference between disbelief and doubt. And I'm going to just say it right at the beginning, and I'll say it again at the end today. Disbelief is not the same thing as doubt. Or let me say it the other way around. Doubt is not the same thing as disbelief. The opposite of faith is not doubt. So if you're listening today and you're saying, wait, I've got some doubts, and so therefore I must not really be a Christian because I have my doubts. I've got some maybe intellectual doubts. I've got some some doubts in my own heart. I'm still wrestling through what I believe about Jesus. You know, all that kind of stuff. I want to say it, that doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is normal. I have doubt. The greatest people that you know, the greatest believers that you know have doubt. Even John the Baptist, we saw this a few weeks ago, even John the Baptist had his doubts about Jesus. And that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. That doesn't mean that you're not a believer, a true believer in Jesus, because the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is disbelief. And there's a huge difference between disbelief and doubt. I want to make sure that you see that. That's what we're going to look at as we jump into the text for today. So let's do it. Mark chapter 8, verses 11 to 13, it says this. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had arrived. Remember, he had just been in Gentile territory. We saw that at the end of chapter 7. They heard that Jesus had arrived. They came and started to argue with him. Testing him, they demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. And when he heard this, 
He sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, why do these people keep demanding a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, I will not give this generation any such sign. So he got back into the boat and left them, and he crossed to the other side of the lake. Now, there's a lot of good stuff in here. Let's just pause right here because there's a lot of stuff we can kind of draw out, a lot of insights we can draw out. First of all, first of all, notice that it says that they tested him. The word in the NLT is testing him. And Pillar New Testament commentary says this, the word for test, the Greek word is parazane, doesn't mean an objective test to discover the merit of something, but it's an obstacle or stumbling block to discredit it. In other words, it's not a genuine test. Like they don't really want to know the truth. They're not coming to Jesus with open hearts. They're not coming to Jesus wholeheartedly. You know, like what it said in Jeremiah 29, 13, if you pursue me with your whole heart, you'll find me. They're not coming to God with that attitude. They're coming to God. They're coming to Jesus to trip him up. They're coming to Jesus to disprove him. They specifically want to disprove him. In fact, the Pillar New Testament commentary goes on to say this, that this word for test only occurs four times in the Gospel of Mark. And here they are. Three times it was referring to the opposition of the Pharisees. Chapter 8, verse 11, chapter 10, verse 2, and chapter 12, verse 15, if you want to go look them up. But the only other time that the word parazane shows up, the word for test, is in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, or in other words, when Satan tested Jesus in the wilderness. So literally, when it says here in Mark chapter 8, verse 11, that the Pharisees came to test Jesus, asking for a miraculous sign to prove who he was, they weren't actually trying to confirm their their small faith in Jesus, what they were trying to confirm is their disbelief in Jesus. So the Pharisees were coming to Jesus to disprove him. They'd already made up in their minds that they weren't going to trust in Jesus. The pillar commentary goes on to say this, faith that depends on proof is not faith, but only veiled Doubt, And they give an example. If a man hires a private eye to spy on his wife while he's away in order to prove her faithfulness, the detective's proofs will scarcely guarantee the husband's faith. Faith, like love itself, can't be proven. It can only be demonstrated by trust and active commitment. And so the Pharisees right here, Mark wants us to understand this. When the Pharisees come to test Jesus, demanding a sign, they were trying to prove what they already believed about Jesus. They already believed that Jesus was a nobody. They'd already made up in their minds that Jesus was not from God. And so if you're listening today, and I know that there are probably some people who are listening today, and you have already decided, you have already made up in your mind that you aren't going to believe in Jesus no matter what happens, no matter what you read, no matter what you hear, Look, if that's your attitude, guess what? You are not going to come to faith in Jesus because you have already determined, you've already made your decision. And there's a word for that. We're calling it disbelief. If you've already made up in your mind that you're not going to believe Jesus, well, then there's no promise in God's word that you'll find God. 
Because again, Jeremiah 29, 13 says, if you seek me, you will find me if you seek me with your whole heart. If you genuinely come to me, come to my word, come to church, come to a mentoring relationship, whatever, if you genuinely come saying, look, I might have some ideas, I might have some preconceived notions, but I'm willing to put those aside. I really want to know if Jesus is God. I really want to know if the Bible is true. In fact, Jesus said this in John 7, verses 16 to 17. He said, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or merely my own. I want to read that last part again. He says, anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or merely my own. So Jesus is saying, if if you come to me with a desire to do the will of God, Jeremiah would say that, would call that wholehearted pursuit. If you come to me with a desire to do the will of God, then you will know that Jesus' teaching is from God. But the opposite of that is also true. If you come to scripture, if you come to today's podcast or to this story today in Mark chapter 8, if you come to Jesus like the Pharisees are doing in this passage, if you come to Jesus already in your mind knowing that you don't want to do the will of God, already knowing that you want to disprove Jesus, then there's, there's really no chance for you to know the God of the Bible because you've already made up your mind. And God is not going to force himself on you. He's not going to make you believe in him. Nowhere in the Bible do you see God making people believe in him. God invites us to a pursuit of him, but he doesn't force it on us. So if you're listening to this today and you've got this idea that, you know, that God is a, you know, a different kind of a God than what you grew up believing, uh, you need to put those preconceived notions aside. Maybe you're a, an agnostic today. Or maybe you would even call yourself an atheist today. Look, if you, if you are set in your disbelief, then God's not going to change your mind. And this is what's going on with the Pharisees. They've already made up in their minds that they're not going to believe in Jesus. In fact, notice that Mark uses the word sign, that the Pharisees were looking for a sign. He doesn't use the word miracle here because that's not what they're looking for. I mean, if they wanted to see miracles, they could have seen all the miracles. Probably many of them had seen miracles. They were demanding a sign to try to gain by empirical means what you can't gain by anything but faith. So some of you out there, maybe, are, maybe you've done this with God. Is you, I need a sign. God, if you give me a sign from you, if you give me like irrefutable evidence that you are God then I'll believe in you. Guess what? You're more like a Pharisee, if that's your attitude, than you are like the fisherman, which we're going to see in just a little bit. If you're demanding a sign, then what you're doing is you're coming to God on your terms, not on his terms, and he probably isn't going to give you any proof. You know, he, this, he doesn't give them proof. That, that, that's what it says here. It says that he sighed deeply in his spirit. Look, I get that as a as a father, I get when you're so exasperated by your kids. It says he sighed deeply in his spirit. And then he said, why do these people keep demanding miraculous signs? And he says, I will not give this generation any such sign. And he left. And let that be a lesson to us. You know, if you're listening to this so far and you're relating to these Pharisees, 
you've already made up in your mind that you are not going to believe in Jesus, then here's what happens. Then Jesus leaves. Jesus walks away. He He's not going to abide that kind of faithlessness. He's not going to abide that kind of disbelief. He's not going to try to twist your arm into following him. He's going to walk away. In fact, Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosopher, the scholar, the brilliant debaters of the world? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. And look at what he says here. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. So I wonder if Paul right here is thinking back to this Mark 8 passage. It's foolish. The message of the cross is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So God is not in the business of trying to convince anybody. God is in the business of offering salvation to people, offering plenty of proof, but he's not going to make anyone believe in him. So some of you might say, I feel like I'm too smart for God. I, I've, I've got, uh, you know, my brain doesn't work that way. Maybe I'm, I'm an engineer or I'm a scholar and, and you're just looking for empirical evidence for Jesus you're not gonna you're not gonna find it now again I'm, that doesn't mean that faith is blind faith faith in Jesus isn't blind faith there are so many reasons to trust God's word there's so many reasons to to trust the message of the cross but if you're trying to do it all by your either by your intellect you'll never get there the Greeks couldn't and you won't either and if you're trying to do it all by demanding signs it's not going to happen either because Jesus wouldn't do it for the Pharisees. So we're done talking about the Pharisees. We're done talking about disbelief because now the section of scripture, verse 14, remember Jesus gets in his boat and the disciples get in with him and they leave those disbelieving Pharisees. But then it says this, the disciples had forgotten to bring any food and they'd only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. And as they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Okay, now let's pause here for a second because there's a couple things that we need to keep in mind. Now remember, he had the first section in chapter 8, verses 1 to 10. We didn't cover it last week because we covered it a couple of weeks ago in conjunction with the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. So we already saw in chapter 6 the feeding of the 5,000. Then we saw in in the first part of chapter 8 the feeding of the 4,000. Those things just happened. And now the disciples are getting in the boat with Jesus he had just, you know, gone toe-to-toe with the Pharisees. He rejected the Pharisees. They get in the boat, and Jesus, they, they forget to bring food. They only have one loaf of bread, and Jesus uses that as kind of like a, like a metaphor, and he says to them, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. So let's, let's start with what he meant by that. So whenever in the New Testament it talks about yeast— it's talking about this kind of, if you think about yeast and how yeast works itself through, through bread, through dough, 
yeast gets mixed into the dough and it what what happens it's like this pervasive um, influence right that's what yeast is yeast works itself through it's a symbol of this corrupting influence that works through uh through the dough so in Jesus in this case Jesus is talking about it's it's working through maybe the Jewish people and and even the disciples might have you know bought it a little bit so in our t- in our day today when we think about yeast we think about maybe the corrupting influence this pervasive influence of of just like lies and half truths that are making their way throughout our culture it's reaching into our families into our churches even even to our kids so that's what yeast is yeast is a bad thing and Jesus says beware of the yeast of the Pharisees number 1 and two, the yeast of Herod. Now, probably what we can think about, if we go back to some of the stuff we've studied so far in the book of Mark, the, the yeast of the Pharisees probably talks about religious influence, that pervasive influence of false religion or religiosity. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about inner purity and the tradition of the elders, and they were all about hand washing and all this stuff, but they were, they were can- if you remember back to Mark 7, they were canceling God's word and they were substituting their own tradition. And so that's probably what Jesus has in mind when he talks about the yeast of the Pharisees is just, you know, kind of this religiosity that can that can overtake over time in institutional religion, this religiosity where pretty soon we we've got the letter of the law but we're missing the spirit of the law. Or in a lot of cases, we're even missing the letter of the law, which is what happened with the tradition of the elders in Judaism. You know, hundreds of years, thousands of years of Jewish religion, and they had gotten so far from the point of the law, the Ten Commandments and such, that they were, I mean, really, like the religion of Judaism in Jesus's day, 2,000 years or so, you know, after uh, the Ten Commandments were given, I mean, it was like, Jesus couldn't even recognize it. Now, the Ten Commandments were his. He authored those. But, but Judaism in Jesus' day had, had gone so far afield from that that he was basically saying, this isn't even what God intended when he gave the Ten Commandments. You're missing the whole point of religion, basically. And so he said, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees that just permeates the dough. It permeates your church. And maybe this is a good time to hit pause and talk about this with your small group or your family or with your mentor and to say, what are some of the things in terms of religious influence that can permeate? So that's the yeast of the Pharisees. But then he says, he also talks about the yeast of Herod, right? The beware of the yeast of Herod. Well, well, that brings us back to the story from Mark chapter 6, where you know we talked about Herod and John the Baptist, and John the Baptist called out Herod's sin, and Herod was disturbed by that. He didn't like being called out, but he was also really curious because of the message that John was bringing about Jesus. But remember what happened in that story that, that Herodias, Herod's stepdaughter, does this sensual dance, and just for something that stupid, something that inconsequential some for a, a momentary fleeting pleasure herod you know sold out john the baptist instead of listening to him and he has john the baptist beheaded and so when i when i when i read the yeast of herod that's what i'm thinking i'm thinking of sensual influence and and this is so true today there's so many people today in our churches and our culture who sell out their faith who bail on their faith why 
because of some sensual influence. Maybe there are some young men listening to this who are so wrapped up in a porn addiction. Maybe you've trusted Jesus for salvation. Maybe you even grew up in youth group. Maybe you really, like at some level, you really want to know God and to have a relationship with Jesus, but you are so wrapped up in this sensual influence that the yeast of Herod, the same thing that trapped Herod, is the thing that's trapping you today, and and you're missing Jesus because of it. Because this, this influence, this yeast in your life that is so overtaken your life that you're in bondage to it. And so we've got the religious influence, the yeast of the Pharisees. We've got the sensual influence, the yeast of Herod. And then we have these other cultural influences that can spread misinformation in our world today, right? Like the the way our culture today talks about sexuality and gender and so many young people, and I don't think it's just young people, but so many young people are buying that baloney, the yeast of our culture, the cultural, right? It's permeating everything. And so now we have woke churches and now we have, I mean, we've got Christ, people who call themselves Christians who are affirming some of the very stuff that God's word is so clear on. It's so clear on. You're, you're falling for that yeast. I think Jesus would say to you, beware of the yeast of our culture. Beware of the misinformation that is being spread in our culture on sexuality or on gender or, or on abortion. It's crazy to me how the line has moved even among evangelical Christians today. You know, 50 years ago, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, most evangelical Christians would have take, taken the same stance on abortion that we believe it's wrong. It's not that we don't want women to have choice. It's just that the right to life of a human being, which starts not at birth, it starts at conception, that that is important, it's valuable, that we should speak up for that, that we shouldn't we shouldn't fall for the yeast of our culture and the influences and all the stuff that they're saying to us today about this. And yet, and yet today, older evangelicals still believe in a biblical stance on abortion, but younger evangelicals are starting to turn more and more in favor of abortion rights. How could this be? Young people, I hope you're listening to this. Please go to the word of God and let God's word speak to this more than your culture speaks to this. So anyway, back to the text. So Jesus is in the boat with his disciples and he's telling his followers, beware of the yeast. Beware of this influence that can overtake you, whether it's religious influence, the yeast of the Pharisees, whether it's sensual influence, the yeast of Herod, whether it's some other cultural influence today. I really believe Jesus would be saying that to us today. Beware of the yeast. Watch out because it's so easy to miss Jesus. It's so easy to be drawn into these things that can pervade our churches, can pervade our families, can get mixed in in our podcasts and what we listen to. And Jesus is saying, beware. Some of you listening today, this is what God wants you to hear is you need to watch out for the yeast. You've got to pay attention to what you're listening to and don't take all of it in. Like, be more discerning is what Jesus is saying here. And then in verse 16, it says this, and this is actually kind of comical. It says, at this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. 
So it's so funny that Jesus is talking about something much deeper than physical food, but they think he's, it's almost like they're half listening to him. And isn't that true? Don't we sometimes half listen to Jesus? And, and they start arguing about actual physical bread and Jesus knew what they were saying. And so here's what he says. Why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? And then he goes back and he reviews some of the things we've already looked at in the last couple of months. He says, when I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterward? And they said, 12. And when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Remember, that was what he had literally had just done in verses 1 to 10. And they said, seven. And then Jesus said this, don't you understand yet? And that's it. That's the end of our section for today. That's the end of our lesson for today. Now, let me, let me try to bring, bring this home for you. So the section of scripture we're reading, verses 11 to 21, starts off with Jesus going toe-to-toe with the Pharisees and their disbelief. Remember, disbelief is different from doubt. So he goes toe-to-toe with their disbelief because they'd already made up their minds that they weren't going to believe in Jesus. And when Jesus understood that, he just left them. He didn't try to convince them. He didn't try to twist their arms. And then he gets in the boat with his inner circle, like with his best friends, his closest followers. And what do we see with them? They're still having a hard time understanding who Jesus is. Now, hopefully, some of you can relate more to the disciples. And I want want you to see that as exasperated as he was with the Pharisees, remember he sighed deeply from like deep down in his spirit, you almost get the sense that he does this with his disciples as well. But guess what? The disciples are still in the boat with him. In other words, Jesus isn't saying to his disciples, your doubt, your, your confusion is as bad as the disbelief of the Pharisees because he knew their hearts. And even though, you know, he asked them the question, you have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Really, in essence, he was saying is you did, you don't, you still don't quite get it, but guess what? They were still on the journey with Jesus. For us today, that's how faith is. Every single person, when you go to church this week, every single person at church has doubts, even the person up behind the pulpit, every single person has doubts. But for the people who pursue God wholeheartedly, God promises that they'll find him. The difference between the Pharisees and the disciples is massive. It's hard to even compute. It's hard to measure the difference. The difference between disbelief and doubt is enormous. If you're listening today and you've got questions, you've trusted Jesus for salvation, but you still got questions, listen, join the crowd. That's all of us, including the disciples. And Jesus ends this section just saying, don't you understand yet? And it's really a, it's a rhetorical question. In other words, the answer is basically, no, I don't. I, I don't. I don't get it. It kind of reminds me of the father who comes to Jesus and asks him to heal his his child. And Jesus says, do you believe? And, And the father's answer was this. He says, yes, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. That's such an authentic, honest answer. Instead of pretending that we've got it all together and our faith is perfect, instead of pretending, 
why don't we just admit that we all have our doubts? Parents, why don't you admit that? Maybe even have this conversation with your kids and be honest with your kids and say, look, I've had my doubts in my life as well, but that doesn't mean I don't believe in Jesus. You know, say with that father, I believe God, but help me in my unbelief. I'm on a journey with you, Jesus, but at least I'm in the boat with you. I'm not, I'm, you didn't leave me at the shore because, because I, I haven't come to you already knowing that, that I want to disprove you. I've come to you acknowledging that I've got my doubts, but saying to you, I, I want to move forward with you. I want to know who you are. I want to pursue you. I want to, I want to get it. I want to grasp it. I want to understand it, but I can't fully understand it. Help me. This is hard. There's a million reasons why this is hard. So many of us, all of us, have faith like that. It's just imperfect faith, and it's just the way faith is. I want to finish today by going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You know, we read some of that already about how the Jews are seeking signs and the Greeks are seeking wisdom, but but God's not going to give either one of those. He says, Paul says this in verse 26, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. You know, I think the reason that every one of us has doubt is because it keeps us humble before God. It puts us in a place where we recognize that we don't have it all together and we have to depend on Jesus in our faith. That's why we call it faith. It's not 100% certainty. It really is faith. It's not blind faith but it's faith. It's faith that's riddled with doubts here and there. And if, if you've been there before, again, I want you to be encouraged. God likes you in that place. He likes it that you have to depend on him. But remember, there's a difference between doubt and disbelief. Have you made a decision that there's nothing you can read, there's nothing you can hear that will convince you that Jesus is who the Bible says he is? Well, then you're like the Pharisees. Or are you somebody who, yeah, you have your doubts, but you're on a journey with Jesus. You're in the boat. Jesus wants to reveal himself to you. He did it for his disciples, and he can do the same thing for every one of us. Hey, listeners, this is Brian Dwyer reminding you to rate this show on your favorite podcast app. That really does help us when you do that. That way more people can discover this podcast and start listening. And also don't forget to share the podcast with a friend.